Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I am uh, one of your two fabtabulous hosts, Mark Rossetti Jr., here as always with the uh, corn to the rye in my mash bill, DJ Guyton. Hey everybody, we're back, and Mark is not horribly dying of a plague this week. No, I'm not horribly dying of dying of a plague. Um, well, I mean, I guess we could just sh- jump into what we were doing this week. I finally got to uh, take a COVID test. I had uh, avoided them for a uh, what two years now, two and a half years, however the fuck long this I don't know how. never ending <laughs> pandemic is this time warp that we're stuck in, <laughs> right? Um, but I hadn't had to take one, and then I was just feeling really weird and not, you know, it was different hoo ha. So uh, we had a couple of those uh, quick 15-minute, you know, at-home tests. So when you see all the celebrities do when, you know, they're on set at a movie or a sporting event or something, and I didn't have COVID, it turned out I just had some fun sinus problems, you know, that gremlin from my uh, childhood came back. But by about Wednesday or Thursday, whatever the hell demon was trying to eat its way out of the frontal lobe of my brain, skittered out in the middle of the night and presumably got attacked by my cat. (laughs) Uh, so here we are Uh, we had that going so I do apologize for the delay but uh, I had a weird like you know how you know when you don't use a coaster on certain tables you get like a ring from the glasses Mm -hmm. I had that on my face (laughs) like following my sinuses I was just you know whatever it was was just trying to eat away at everything so I would have been more grumpy than usual did you actually go to the doctor and get this checked out? No, no, because once not. I... No, 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 no. What happened was the COVID test came back negative, and I was like, okay, that's cool. I know what I don't have. And then not long after it, I had, you're going to laugh at this, but I had to bend over to tie my shoe. <laughs> and when I bent over to tie my shoe, my head basically tried to explode. And that's how you know you have a sinus infection or a sinus issue or whatever. The downward pressure just ends the world. And I said, oh, hello, old friend. It's been quite some time since we've had a dance. (laughs) And so I stopped what I was doing, and I basically went in the shower and stood under the shower with the water as hot as it could be until the hot water ran out. And that opened me up for a few minutes and gave me some relief. And I went, yep, I know what this is. (laughs) Amazing. All all those years of not having insurance, you learn how to treat these things. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have insurance now, but for like a decade, you know, you just, you had to home remedy it, so. Yeah, I'm speaking from a fairly privileged position of having insurance for all of my life, so we're, I can't relate, but I understand. They were making fun of me at the dentist's office yesterday as we record this, because I had a cleaning scheduled, which I forgot about. Thank God they text you now, you know, modern technology and everything. Completely forgot I had a cleaning scheduled. So I went to the dentist and, you know, do the appointment, everything's fine, cool, and I go to pay, and the lady's like, you don't have insurance, right? And I said, oh, wait, I actually do have dental insurance now. (laughs) And I I pulled out my card, I'm like, I just got this in January, and I don't know what it does. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, But it apparently covers cleanings, so I didn't have to pay, and it was like the weirdest feeling when they're like, you can go now, and I'm like, can... Can I? Like, you're Are you sure? Come, you're not going to come running after me? <laughs> That's hilarious. 
What about you? What'd you do this week? Uh, well, um, so I worked a lot on the nursery. Yes, you did. I've, I've been getting your updates for your uh, the tiny beans photos, and I feel bad because like I want to give it a like, but every time I, I go to give it a like, it tells me I have to log in, and I don't remember what my login is. But I am seeing them all. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, no, uh, I talked to Holly last week, and I was like, hey, we told most people. Can I mention this in the podcast yet? And she's like, yeah, it's probably fine. So, yeah, you know, I'm having a baby, and that's kind of fun. <laughs> Yeah, we, we there's going to be a, a third chair for next season of the Wind Whiskey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to be recording piecemeal between between feedings and, and diaper changings. Uh, but yeah, that'll be fun. Uh, I, the nursery is kind of done. Like the the major shit is just done in the nursery. Cribs in, mattresses in, the changing table is built. Bookcases are in intact to the wall. The the uh, the dresser is d- in, so uh, I mean, there's still work to do, but like the vast majority of it was like painting and getting the big piece of furniture. the uh, The wall vinyl was a fucking trip. You ever done any of these like giant vinyl wall sticker things? I mean, never in a house. I, I've done a few on, on cars from time to time, but ne- never in a house. Yeah, the. <laughs> It came in like a giant roll and I did a tree, right? Like a tree. It spans almost the entire wall. And so the tree came in like eight pieces and then it had like birds and leaves. But every bird and every leaf was its own damn sticker. Yeah. So I hand put on like... I don't know, 200 leaves on this tree, easy. I stopped counting after a while. <laughs> it was so much. Uh, but it looks really pretty now. And uh, Holly and I are just kind of chipping away at our registry at this point, like a little bit. I, I we, we both agreed to like buy a, a, you know a few small things or one big thing every week until the baby gets here. It's the way you got to do it. You got to roll through it. You know, it's like... Uh... Roger Penske used to always say, plan your work, work your plan. Um, but no, I, I've been enjoying the updates. Uh, shit looks good. Uh, and it is kind of funny. You know, I love you to death, but when it comes to home renovations, you and timelines don't get along. So so seeing you with a nine-month window here is kind of fun. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, the, the funny <laughs> thing is that, like, I immediately got, like, amped up for all this baby stuff. So I'm reading parenting and pregnancy books. Uh, and But, like, weird sleep things have already started kicking in, Mark. Like, I can't really sleep past 8, 15 in the morning anymore. <laughs> I mean, I can't off. either. But but I, I can't either. That's just because I have to feed the cat. And he reminds me of said. It's true. But this is good shit that, you know, at least your body is preparing yourself. Yeah. I'm just tired. I mean, I'm sure I'll be more tired later, but (laughs) it's like I other people have said that they're like, oh, yeah, you're getting used to it. I'm like, do you? Because I'm just tired. I don't know if I'm going to get used to this feeling. I think I'm just going to be tired forever. I'm never not going to be tired. Yeah, it's fine. I know what I'm getting into. Uh, But last night we put all the the kids books on the bookshelves. So we just have, like, a ton of, like, little kid picture books, and 
it's a billion things. Um, I, I, we put these like little cubbies on the bottom shelves and they're already starting to fill up with like baby bottles and baby binkies and things like that. And I got a whole basket of shit to wash and put away in the dresser now. But I'm also working in my office, so it's just all home renovations right now. Well, you know, as it should, uh, a, a good house is like a good car. It's never truly done. Yeah. I want to get to a place where I'm just not thinking about it every single day. But that's my problem. Yeah. What are you, uh, what are you drinking, buddy? Well... Speaking of my problems, uh, we ended the last episode, you ended the last episode actually, talking about our good friends at uh, the Bullet Distillery and how they always have their rye and their bourbon and they're always right next to each other and they're there and they're prominent and they have bright colorful labels and yada yada yada. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, also in that exact same vein is our friends at Redemption. And I reviewed Redemption Rye... A while ago, I want to say like season one, season two, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're the same gimmick. You walk into the liquor store, they have their rye, they have their bourbon, they have different labels. You go to town. Well, I went to the liquor store the other day, and now there were three redemption b- bottles. There was the rye, there was the bourbon, and then presumably for people who can't make decisions, there was a high rye bourbon. Huh. And, you know, the label's got a hell of an elevator speech. It's got a hell of a sales pitch. Redemption is bringing back rye to its pre-prohibition glory. Remember, we were just talking about this in our Whiskey and Whiskey episode. It's such a... It's like the biggest whiskey gimmick there is. Right? Our high rye bourbon whiskey is made with corn and a high content of rye to ensure complexity and balance. Join us in the rye revival. And they give you, right on the bottle, the mash bill. 60% corn, 36% rye, and 4% barley. <laughs> now, when you have people like me that, you know, drink 100% rye, you know, 75% rye, 80% rye, this is not like 30, 36% you laugh. But as we talked about in Whiskey and Whiskey, this is a really high rye mash bill for just a straight bourbon. Yes. So I said, okay, you know what? We're going to try it. It's pretty new. Um, From what I've gleaned off the Redemption website, they've only been bottling it since 2020. So it's not even a full two years old. All right. And, you know, it checks a lot of the right boxes. We already went over the mash bill. That's good. They don't have a certified age statement, but their website claims that most bottles are two and a half years old, which, of course, you can't get that certified. So that's why there's no age statement on it. But, you know, so we'll say around two, two and a half years old. Uh, it's 92 proof, so it's got a nice balance. And it wasn't that expensive. It was only like $28, $30, something like that. So, okay. But I just don't like it. And, <laughs> like, I want to. It, it's just, the problem is, it doesn't know whether it wants to be a bourbon or a rye. And so because of that, it fails at both. Mm-hmm. They, they talk on the bottle about balance. This is not balanced at all. You know, you get your usual, like, corn 
and char and oak notes from the bourbon right in the beginning. Then you get a really solid rye bite, and then you just get a really long burn. And, like, if you didn't know any better, if I just put a glass of this in front of you and said drink it, you would think it was stronger than 92 proof. Not because, like, you could sit here and drink it, and you're not going to get, like, hammered off of two glasses or anything like that. But it just, it tastes like you're drinking. The finish is, like, turpentine. It just burns. And I like a good fiery whiskey, but there, it's like there's no reason for something, I don't want to say this weak, but there's no reason for something this proof to burn this much. Yeah. And, and there's just, there's no balance, there's no complexity to it. I've seen a lot of things online when I was looking this up, because I, when I first bought it, I was curious about it. I've seen a lot of things online with this, with the, the, the freaking hashtag. Let me see. I saved it in my notes. Here it is. Hashtag respect the bottom shelf. I don't know if this is necessarily bottom shelf. I mean, we've drank some shit on this show yeah. <laughs> during during our tasting the well segments. Has. Yeah. It's it's not that bad, but I, I don't know. It's just I was disappointed with it. It's just I, it literally is the meme, and I don't even know what show it's from, but it literally is the meme. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting this. But, you know, at like 30 bucks, if it's something that you at least pick, piques your curiosity like it piqued mine, you're not going to lose a lot of money on it. And I'm sure, like, I'm drinking it straight here. I have it on my whiskey stones. It probably wouldn't be bad in a cocktail. You could probably mellow it out. That's fair. Yeah, I... I feel like that's my struggle with things that try to cross into a couple of things. It tends to dilute it. Yeah, and it's just, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, as they say. Uh, what about you? What are you drinking? I, uh, I, 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 fell for, I fell for the gimmick, man. Well, uh, so did I after that review, <laughs> but go ahead. Uh, so I did, for the first time ever, buy myself a whiskey that was in a cardboard tube. Okay. <laughs> uh, because we were talking about, well, I was talking about Irish whiskeys the week before. And I went to the store and I was like, ah, none of these are really grabbing me except for the giant, really expensive one that I don't want to buy just yet. Uh, and then I was kind of looking at the scotches and a lot of scotches are in these nice display tubes or display boxes. And right on the edge were a couple of Irish whiskeys. So I picked myself up a bottle of the Tear Connell Single Malt Irish Whiskey in its own okay. tube. Uh, and after buying my first tube whiskey, um, I, I don't really care about the gimmick. I don't really get the point of having a tube. It seems to take up more room on the shelf uh, than I could be putting other bottles in that space. So... Um, that being said, it's a pretty good whiskey. <laughs> I do enjoy it. It's a single malt. Uh, it's fairly smooth, but it doesn't uh, get rid of the burn completely, which is nice. Um, it, it's an Irish, so it, all around, I like Irishes. Mark doesn't because he's a Philistine. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> but they're they're good. Uh, it's it's definitely got a woody taste, but nowhere near like uh, you know Woodford Reserve or something like that. Um, there's a little bit of honey, 
on the palate, uh, but definitely getting uh, a fair amount of of m- malt. Um, because we, as we did talk, there's a lot of uh, uh, last time. There's a lot of mar- malted barley in uh, Irish whiskeys. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really good. Um, it's single malt, single pot. Uh, I don't I don't really have anything crazy uh, to to say about it, but uh, I do find it pretty interesting that uh, it's the name of the horse that ran the uh, national produce stake. I don't really know too much about the history here, um, but I guess uh, it, the story goes back to like 1876. And a horse won, and they named the whiskey after it. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, it, it is only $45 a bottle. It's uh, 80 proof. It, it's pretty decent. If you're looking for something a little bit higher up on the shelf uh, and those cardboard tubes aren't scaring you away, definitely check this one out. You made me laugh when you were talking about it. Just was taking up room. The uh, in our senior year of college, you know, friend of the show Lou and I were roommates, and the way we had our apartment set up, basically there was like a half wall. So my desk was surrounded on three sides by walls, and so I basically like used those walls to be like a makeshift bookshelf for two of those sides, and then I had a couple of bottles of, you know, the whiskeys I was drinking, which at the time were nowhere near, you know, what it is now. <laughs> but I remember somebody gave me a bottle of Glenfiddich. Yeah. And it came in the triangle tube. <laughs> and I loved the tube, but it was like, it just fucked everything on the desk up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I took it out of the tube. I looked at it. I looked at the tube, and then I just threw the tube out. I was like, there's no point to this. Why do I... Why why the tube? In the hole you go. Yeah, it turns out it's all just marketing. Yeah. Uh, well, you gave me a great segue for Whiskey News. Oh? Because I found something that is not only all just marketing, it involves tubes. <laughs> oh, no. Don't ask me how I stumbled across this, because I honestly don't remember. But there is a company called Daneson, D-A-N-E-S-O-N, mm-hmm. and they make various flavored uh, designer toothpicks. <laughs> yes, you heard me correctly. And so you can buy a two-pack, which you get two tubes uh, in this pack, one is a single malt scotch flavored, and the other is bourbon flavored. And there's only two, like two toothpicks. No, no, no. There's two tubes. Within each tube, you have 12 toothpicks of the flavor. That's still not that many toothpicks. Well, for 24 toothpicks, do you want to guess how much without shipping? $24? 18 Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, so you're probably... Going <laughs> way too expensive. Yeah. You, you're with, with shipping, you're going to be paying about a dollar a toothpick. Uh, they supposedly taste just like single malt scotch and bourbon. They're supposedly made from the same type of oak that uh, they use for uh, the, the barrels to age whiskeys with. And if you look at the pictures they provide on their website, one end, presumably the end you're supposed to use, I would assume, doesn't really come with instructions, but one end is charred. 
so you'll get a little smoky taste as well. Uh, what what end goes in your mouth? I presume the smoky end. I don't know. It doesn't say. <laughs> oh uh, and I love too. They have reviews because they have a whole shitload of flavors, like you know, fucking mint, like mint flavor and chocolate, and then there's whiskey. And they have a whole fucking cinnamon. Yeah, cinnamon, a whole a whole thing, and they just have these most generic reviews. So the one, the quote that's up for the bourbon and scotch two-pack is, I have been using toothpicks regularly for well over 15 years, and I'm very pleased someone has finally offered picks of this quality, and I take their product very seriously. Why? <laughs> that is from Corey S. Don't! In Cape, Cape Coral, Florida. So Florida man weighing in. Um... I mean, I have to admit, I'm really curious. This is not something that I would order online, but if I ever walked into like a liquor store or a flea market or something and there was a whole display of them, I probably would impulse buy a pack. Okay, yeah, so that's why, folks. Mark keeps buying bullshit, and that's why people keep making bullshit. I mean, now that you mention it, I think this actually was one of the Google lead ads I got on something <laughs> I'm else. I'm not surprised. Because <laughs> they're like, you're terrible with money. <laughs> the, algorithm, <laughs> the algorithm got you pegged, bro. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Daneson.com if you're interested. And like I said, they have a whole shitload of flavors um, that I couldn't really give two shits about. And they have all different sizes, too. And, hey, you know, this little thing just popped up. They must be listening to us, DJ. I got a little pop-up, you know, how they have those, like, live tech support, you know, can I help you bullshit things? Yeah. Well, it was one of those style things, and it just came up. If you order $50 or more of our product, we can do it in four interest-free payments. (laughs) Yeah, because you said money. (laughs) So I'm going to close this window. (laughs) Uh, But that's, uh, that's whiskey news this week. If... I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty much a functioning alcoholic, but I don't need to f- know if I need to clean my teeth with booze. No, you don't. You know what you need to clean your teeth with? A toothbrush. Maybe some floss picks, because it's 2022, and we don't use toothpicks anymore. I, I use floss picks, so yeah. But hey, if you're that hard up, Listerine has alcohol in it. I mean, come on. I mean, I have a bottle of Listerine, but it's mostly for when I get out of bed in the morning. All right, what about tools and trade? <laughs> I got nothing on that, so. <laughs> no, clearly. Uh, I want to talk about cocktail cherries. Okay. Because I want to talk about what's terrible and what's good and maybe how to make your own. I'm all about this. All right, so uh, I'll go to a pretty good clip here. Uh, cocktail cherries, also known as maraschino cherries, are... Generally a garnish that you're going to use for cocktails like the Manhattan, the, the Old Fashioned, anything that uses a flag. And uh, for those of you who may not know that term, uh, because I didn't until I went to bartending school, uh, a flag is basically a cocktail cherry wrapped in a, a half moon of orange with a t- toothpick thrown in it. Uh, and cherries are like the most common cocktail garnish out there. Uh they use them for non-alcoholic cocktails as well. The the uh, Roy Rogers, yeah, yeah, uh, Roy Rogers and the Shirley Temple. 
uh, being kind of the the primary ones that everybody knows about. Uh, and there's two different kinds of cocktail cherries. There's the cherries that have been almost candied and are floating in syrup. And then there's your boozy cherries that are usually tossed in, you know, brandy, whiskey, vodka, you know, whatever it happens to be. Uh, if you're going to go the candied, non-alcoholic cherry route, uh, I don't recommend getting the day-glow radioactive cherries you're going to get at the grocery store. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with those. Uh, you know, it's corn syrup and a brightly colored cherry. Uh, they're fine for ice cream sundaes. Uh, but if you're going to go for cherries for a cocktail... Um, I highly recommend amping up your game a little bit and heading to your liquor store. Uh, and your liquor store should probably have a section where they've got mixers and garnishes and you'll find cocktail onions. You'll find, um, you know, your, your seltzers and your tonics and your margarita mixes and your Bloody Mary mixes. And somewhere on this series of shelves, you'll find a small jar put out by Luxardo. Now, Luxardo is not the only company that does this, but they are the most common. Uh, it's a rather expensive jar, so only do this if you're you know, really looking to amp up your cocktail game. Uh, but you're not going to go through them crazy quickly unless you're Mark and you're having 14 Manhattans a week. I mean, it's true. <laughs> uh, so check them out. The, I... Uh, Somebody told me to be careful because once you go Luxardo Cherries, you're not going to go back. And uh, I can I can confidently say I have not bought another jar of cherries since I bought that Luxardo jar. Um, now, how long ago was that? Uh, well, I got it my second jar last year. Okay. So it's right. not too bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they last me, like a jar will last me 10 to 12 months. Um, if I'm hosting more people once the pandemic gets up I'll, it'll probably last me six months but uh you know mark can probably get through it in a week um <laughs> it would probably be a month <laughs> yes, <laughs> your, your point stands <laughs> and they for the record they aren't all for me about 90 percent of them are for me but the wife does like them on her ice cream mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very good uh, so basically, these non-alcoholic, non-boozy cherries—it's just uh, cherries in a syrup. They're pit- they're they're unpitted or pitted or whatever you want to call them. Uh, they don't have pits anymore. Uh, and then there, there's a couple of different ways to make your own if you ever want to try this. Uh, you can just do a rich, simple syrup and suspend the cherries uh, in them. Uh, you, if you're gonna do that. Uh, throw in some lemon juice with your simple syrup to help kind of keep everything stable for longer. Uh, but if you're going to do that, you know, you're not going to have any preservatives in there. You're probably going to want to keep those refrigerated, use them within two to three months. Uh, there's another method you can use where you suspend the cherries in granulated sugar. Uh, and you can slowly watch the sugar leach the juices out of the cherries. So the cherries will, at that point, be suspended in a syrup of their own making. Uh, you can do it. It works. You can put it on your windowsill and watch it happen. It's pretty interesting. Um, but you do have to 
know that your cherries are going to ferment a tiny bit. So uh, just, you know, taste them after you're done with that and, and uh, see if you like it. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting Eastern European uh, liqueur recipes that use that as a base. Uh, if you're going to do a boozy uh, set of cherries, I did actually grab a recipe uh, that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, generally, you're going to want to go for sour cherries uh, so that you can get that right balance because there's going to be a lot of sugar in this. Uh, if you can't get sour cherries, because I, I don't know about you, Mark, I have a really hard time finding sour cherries around here. I can only really find sweet cherries. Yeah, unless you go to the farmer's markets around here, and even then it's pretty hit or miss. But yeah, the stores, they don't they don't carry sour cherries. Yeah. Uh, so for this recipe, it's two pounds of cherries, uh, and then you make a simple syrup of uh, two cups of sugar to a half cup of water, uh, and you basically... Uh, Put, put the water and the sugar in a saucepan. You add some lemon juice. You add um, the, uh, the peel uh, of the lemon. You add some cinnamon sticks and some cloves to kind of get some spices going in there. Uh, and then you dissolve all the sugar, make sure everything's happy. Uh, and then uh, you add the cherries. You simmer it for a little bit. And then you take it off of the heat. And the interesting part here is to make it boozy, uh, you do a cup of brandy or bourbon, depending on uh, what your, you know, your poison is. Uh, I, I would prefer to do bourbon. I'm sure Mark would prefer to do bourbon. But brandy is a pretty common uh, you know, cherry liqueur. Uh, and then you do another cup of Luxardo Maraschino liqueur to kind of really lean into that heavy cherry, right? Uh, and then you put it back on, get everything simmering, and then uh, you can can them. Uh, there's a really good method in the recipe I found where you, uh, you get the jars at the right temperature before you, um, before you can them, and then they seal on the counter rather than needing to water bath them. Uh, if you do water bath them, there, there's a chance that it'll leach uh, some of the stuff out of the cherries that maybe you don't want if they had just sat there. Um, but, you know, to each their own. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you want to let the jars sit for two weeks, right? That This is a pretty standard infusing something, uh, some liquor with some sort of flavor. Um, and then, when, you know, after two weeks, you're good. Uh, keep it in the fridge unsealed. So uh, there's... Some really great things you could do with these. Um, I did see a commenter saying that her kids loved them on top of ice cream, and I'm like, bitch, there's some booze in this. Yeah, well, they're probably fucking quiet and go right to bed. <laughs> so maybe don't feed the boozy cherries to your kids, uh, but that, that gives you a primer on, on how to create your own if you're, if you're feeling uh, you know, industrious. DJ says that now, but, you know, fast forward a year, 18 months, and when he's tired, he's going to be like, here you go, honey, cherries, you have teeth now, you can eat these. <laughs> if I do, I'm not telling the podcast about it. <laughs> Gotta get some sleep. Daddy, Daddy needs to go to bed. But, yeah, that's Tools of the Trade. I dig it. Of course and you can you use do. those cherries... 
in a cocktail to make this fucking monstrosity fucking bourbon edible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just turn it into uh, just turn it into a Manhattan or New York sour. No, I wouldn't waste a New York sour on it. I suppose theoretically you could attempt to make a perfect Manhattan with this because a perfect Manhattan you're supposed to use equal parts rye and bourbon. So this has both of it in it. Yeah. I might try to do that this week. Maybe there'll be a follow-up next week. It won't be a full review, but maybe there'll be a follow-up. Yeah, he'll say, yeah, I still hate it. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) At least I'm honest. Uh, Speaking of things I hate, should we get to this week's topic? Yeah, you should. (laughs) I I know you've done a ton of research. Yes. uh, So we're doing disasters this week. Uh, Disasters and whiskey. That's the title on, on the screen of whatever it is you're listening to us on currently. Now, you know, we're doing our standard format. We're both abiding by the rule of three, uh, as we do. I was going to pick the Donner Party, but I really think that should get its own episode, or at least a good chunk of a, a future episode. So sure, I yeah, pick the Donner Party. I'll be absent that week. <laughs> um, it really is a fascinating story, though. Um, is but it? April, <laughs> it is. April is the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And if you're a subscriber to National Geographic, they were on the cover this month. Uh, The History Channel has turned off the aliens for a few days (laughs) and has been running a bunch of uh, documentaries and specials on it. That shitty-ass movie has been being played on basically every network that can get the rights to it. It's a pretty decent movie. It's fucking horrible. Uh, and I'm talking strictly from a piece of film. We're not even getting into the numerous historical inaccuracies because we're going to as we go through this. Uh, but because of that, we're doing disasters. So I'm going to talk about the Titanic. I've done a ton of research on the Titanic, both for this and for the other podcast I'm on that I'm not allowed to talk about. Uh, so I've read so goddamn much about the Titanic. So let's let's just get at it. Uh, I'm going to try to go through this as quick as possible because we do have five other things to talk about. And again, I've read so goddamn much about the Titanic already. It was constructed in Belfast, Ireland in 1909 for the White Star Line. And it was constructed on a custom-built slipway on an island just off the coast of Belfast. It was built solely for it and its sister ship, uh, the Olympic. Do you know what the only other thing manufactured in Belfast, Ireland was, DJ? Um, whiskey. I was talking like material goods. <laughs> oh, no, I assumed whiskey. <laughs> no, I'm sure there are. there is probably a distillery or several distilleries in Belfast. But no, you had the Titanic, and then later on in 1981, you had the DeLorean. Really? Belfast? <laughs> That was where the factory was. It was in Belfast, Ireland. And I don't know what sunk worse. And I like the DeLorean folks, but let's be real. (laughs) Uh, So it was, as everyone knows, it was the largest ship ever constructed at the time. And it was designed to be super luxurious, but it was also designed to be a ferry ship. And this is something that all modern media, but especially that goddamn movie really play up is that, oh, it was just like a cruise liner for the super elite. No, it had almost a three to one ratio of people who were third class. And, you know, we look at it today and we're like, oh, third class, that was so mean. The White Star Line and the Titanic actually completely redid the way we think of immigrant journeys. 
On any other passage, the equivalent tickets to a Titanic third-class ticket was just called steerage. And you got dumped in a hold with no privacy, shared bathrooms, men and women were mixed together, the bunks were four and five on top of each other. The Titanic, you were in third class. You had private cabins. Yes, you might be five or six to a cabin, but you weren't 500 to a cabin. You had private bathrooms. Men and women were separated. Married families were put together with children, and they were separated. It was a much more dignified way to travel, and it was still affordable. The most expensive third-class ticket was only about $900 in today's money. Pretty much anybody could save up $900 today if you try. Mm-hmm. And, and there were actually cheaper tickets down the line. Uh, plus, it ferried a ton of cargo, and it actually was a mail ship. It had a post office on board that could process 60,000 parcels a day. Because at the end of the day, the White Star Line was a capitalist company. They wanted to make money. The super wealthy, weren't, they weren't going to sell enough of those tickets to make money just off that. Uh, however, it was uh, a very difficult berth, shall we say. It only had its sea trials. It only had its shakedown mere days before setting off. And there was a lot of reasons for this. There was uh, building delays. There was cost overruns. There was a massive coal strike going on in England and Wales at the time. So they just couldn't get the coal to fuel the burners. But because of that, it was only like 10 days before the voyage. They even put the thing out to water to see if it would run. Uh, They had a crew of around 900 people. And the vast majority of them, you know, the exception was like the captain and a few officers. But the vast majority of the around 900 crew, they weren't permanent. And this was very common from the time. It's not like it is today where if you go on like a Royal Caribbean cruise, the people on that ship... That's their job. They tour around for six months of the year or however the fuck long these cruise ships are on the water. Then they get laid off for six months. And then when the ship's ready to go again, they come back. They only work on that ship. Back then, it was a lot like sort of a flight attendant is today. If DJ was a crew guy, he would say, okay, the Titanic's going to leave Belfast on this day. And they're going to end up in New York on this day. So I'm going to work on the Titanic. I'm going to go over to America. I'm going to hang out in America for a week. Then I'm going to come back on the Olympic, and the Olympics leave in New York on this day, and then it's going to France. And I'm going to catch another boat in France. You just hop from boat to boat to boat to boat. So because of that, uh, they didn't know. I mean, they knew the basics of, like, different things, but they didn't know the procedures. They didn't know the training. They didn't know what where the equipment was, what even equipment was on the ship. Some of the people were hired and brought on board the morning of the voyage. Uh, so it set sail. Yeah, <laughs> it set sail on April tenth, nineteen twelve, uh, with around twenty two hundred people aboard, which was well, well below capacity. It had about a thirty six hundred person capacity. Uh, it was very expensive, uh, so that turned a lot of people off. They uh, at the higher levels. They had the coal strike again, so a lot of different uh, ships and boats were canceled. People's tickets were getting transferred. And just there was the fact that it was constantly being built. It was constantly being delayed. People were sort of like, yeah, you know what? We're going to give it a we're going to we're going to see what happens. We'll go on the next one. Uh, This is something that only in the last few years has finally been accepted as fact. It was kind of covered up and branded a conspiracy theory for a while. 
But the day before the ship launched and for the first three days of the trip, the ship was on fire. What? It was actually burning below deck. There was a fire in one of the boiler rooms. And while it was technically under control, it took about four days to put out. And what what have we learned from 9-11? No, fire might not melt steel, but it will weaken it. So is that... Did that contribute? Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to rush ahead, Mark. But it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years that people are like, oh, yeah, that actually was a thing. And all these people that have been talking about it aren't actually crackpots. Um, another thing to keep in mind, and this is another thing the movie got wrong, they weren't trying to set a new transatlantic speed record. At least not officially. Now, they were traveling full speed ahead for prolonged periods of the journey, but that actually wasn't that uncommon then. Because, you know, there's the famous line that, you know, not even God himself could sink the ship when talking about the Titanic, right? Well. Well, that was what they claimed. (laughs) But the thing was, it wasn't just the Titanic. The general accepted knowledge of the time from both captains and engineers and shipbuilders, this wasn't just owners, was that almost any modern ship couldn't be sunk unless you attacked it, unless you shot at it. You couldn't hit anything that would sink a ship. Modern shipbuilding had evolved to the point where you couldn't do anything to it. And there were there was a few stories that, that brought this on. A few ships had collided into each other and had been okay. There was a captain just a few years before the Titanic who may or may not have been intoxicated. He saw an iceberg. It was too late to turn. He said, to hell with it. He went full speed ahead and cut the iceberg in half. He drove through it. The ship was damaged, but it didn't sink. That was mostly because the iceberg was melting and was weaker, but they didn't know that at the time. So the idea was, well, you'll just go full speed ahead, and whatever you hit, you'll fuck it up way worse than whatever it'll, whatever it'll do to you. So they were chugging along, WFO, as we used to say in racing, wide fucking open, as they were going through what is still called to this day, Iceberg Alley. I mean, I don't want to sound too Fox News when I say this, but big chunks of glaciers floating through the ocean is nothing new. (laughs) That was a well-known problem in 1912, and they were in the heart of it. Uh, So when they get to April 14th, which is when it sank... There was a nearby steamship doing the same run, Europe to New York, called the Californian. And there were so many icebergs in the area in the North Atlantic, you know, because basically they were going to do kind of the same route that planes do today. You know, they were going to go across the North Atlantic and then come down Newfoundland and then go to New York. And the Californian had stopped for the night. And they're like, there's just too many fucking icebergs. It's too dark we're going to wait till the morning and we're going to reevaluate what's going on. And they were ahead of the Titanic. And so they radioed to the Titanic and they said, this is fucking bullshit. Like you guys are nuts. Slow the fuck down, shut off for the night. We're done. Wait till the morning. We'll, we'll figure it out together. And the way wireless sets worked back then was it was almost kind of like a party line. If you were on the same channel, but because they were so new, if you were a passenger, you could request a wireless transmission 
to one of the different hubs. So like if DJ's on the Titanic, he could say, hey, you know, why are my buddy Bill over in New York? Oh, hey, Bill, we're on the water. Ha ha ha. Fuck you. You know, just whatever you want. And they <laughs> do it. So every night, the poor radio man would just have to go through all these messages that he would have to broadcast on the vain hope that someone on the other end was listening. And on the fateful night of the sinking, he had 66 messages to get through. And he was about halfway through them when the Californian came in over the top of them and started saying, hey, you know, there's all these icebergs here. We're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. And he famously started screaming at him, hey, shut the hell up, will you? Did he really? Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, he says, yeah, shut the hell up, will you? I got to finish these messages, blah, 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 blah. We're not worried about any of that. What a douche. So the radio officer on the Californian was just kind of like, well, fuck you then. He didn't say that, but he turned his radio off and he went to bed. Oh, God. Remember this later. It'll be important. (laughs) So just before midnight on the 14th, uh, the iceberg directly in the path of the Titanic, which is still just fucking chugging along, is noticed from the crow's nest and is radioed down. The captain, realizing that they're going to hit it, decides he's going to turn. Now, again, remember the story we said earlier? He probably should have hit it head on. Would it have helped? Who knows? But it probably wouldn't have done any worse. So they decide to turn. So they begin turning the ship, and they're way too close to avoid hitting it. So what actually happened was the iceberg went down the side of the Titanic. And contrary to popular belief, the hole was not breached. No part of the iceberg ever punctured the steel. It warped it, and it buckled it. And what causes steel to buckle? Heat. Heat. The weakened section where the fire was burning took an impact, all the rivets popped out, and the thing crumpled like a fucking Volkswagen. And so because of that, there was literally a gash in between where these boiler plates were, where all the rivets were, and the water started pouring in the gash. Now... Modern shipbuilding techniques had allowed for what they called watertight compartments. They're basically like bank vaults, huge bank vaults inside this boat that they could seal up once they filled with water. And you could actually sort of balance them out and use them as ballast and it would keep the ship from sinking. That was presuming no more than four of them on any one end of the ship filled up. (laughs) By the time the crews got downstairs... They were already on the sixth one. (laughs) Yes. So now there's a panic. Because remember, this is only like the fourth day of the voyage. Some of these crew guys haven't even been on the boat a week. So somebody went, oh, I fucked up. (laughs) So, you know, the crew is panicking. And the captain's just like, all right, we got to wake everybody up. Get the lifeboats out. We, We have to do this. Now, we're going to get to the fun part about the lifeboats. Oh, no. Because, as I mentioned earlier, it was believed that basically any type of large ship was unsinkable. It was only international law at the time 
that you only needed to have enough lifeboats for one-third of your capacity of passengers. So if your capacity was 10,000, let's say, you only needed to have uh, 33, a, a lifeboat capacity of 3,300 people. And the thought process behind that was, since these ships are unsinkable, if a ship gets damaged, you're not really going to have to worry about a mass evacuation. You're just going to have to load the boats up and take them over to another boat who's coming to you know pick you people up. And you could just sort of do a slow back and forth. So you only need a couple of, couple of lifeboats, eight to ten lifeboats, just to ferry people back and forth. So, n- no, probably not, actually. Now, because the Titanic was so under capacity that we talked about, they had rafts for about half of the passengers, but that didn't cover the 900 or so crew. Uh, The passengers had no evacuation drilling, there was no lifeboat drills, there was no life raft drills, none of that stuff you go through uh, on a cruise today. Most of the crew had no formal training. The officers knew what to do, but a lot of just the deckhands were just kids trying to earn a living. So people were trying to scramble above decks to evacuate the first and the second class passengers. The third class were woken up and they were informed of the situation, but they were kind of left on their own to escape the labyrinth that was the third class decks. And despite what you may have read and despite what that goddamn movie told you, no one was ever locked below deck. That's bullshit. That didn't happen. The issue was that in revolutionizing the third class transit, they actually hurt themselves. Uh, Every other steerage class passenger, the entire below deck was all steerage class because it was just bunks, rows and rows of bunks, everybody together. With the Titanic, when they tried to give you a little privacy and divide you up men and women... They had the men on the bow and the, the women on the stern, or vice versa, but it was the nose and the back of the boat was where these two sets of cabins were. And then the whole middle part was for cargo. So a lot of these people, these immigrants, have gone back and forth a few times. They're bringing family members over. They're going to visit home. They're getting new jobs, etc. They're used to the old way. They get woken up and said, hey, the boat's sinking. you got to get up on deck. They think the whole bottom part is all steerage, like all the other boats. They wander off into the cargo hold, never to be seen again. Oh, no. Yeah. But nobody was locked down there. It was just sort of like, hey, get your family and meet me upstairs. Okay, cool. Oh, oh hey, he's gone. That's kind of what it was. Um, now, the lifeboats were filled based on the principle of women and children first which is exactly what it says on the tin. Although, you know, they, the Titanic had 16 lifeboat loading stations. And so let's say DJ is the captain of lifeboat 11. Everyone that lines up at lifeboat 11, all the women are going to go first, all the children are going to go first, and then if there's any room left, then we're going to start to take on men. The problem with that was most of the time they didn't do the last part. Just all the women are on, all the children are aboard, cool, send the boat. Oh, good. So the vast majority of the Titanic's lifeboats were sent at half capacity or below. Because there probably weren't... I mean, there were women and children, but probably not that many, right? I mean, no. I mean, what, 700... 
there were 700 survivors, and I think like 600 and some of those were women and or children. Uh, and a lot of it was just, you know, the crew training, panicking. I mean, some of it was legitimate. You know, the whole one side of the ship was starting to list, so it became harder to dump ships, uh, lifeboats off that side. So it was just, hey, get as many people in the water as you can. Some of it was legitimate. Some of it was just out-and-out out panic. But the vast majority of the ships were well below capacity. While this was going on, they were trying desperately to reach any other ship they could. They're sending rockets. They're sending flares. They're sending Morse code, SOS, telegrams. They're on the wireless radio, begging, pleading. The ships were either too far away, the famous one being the Carpathia, or they had their radio off and they simply ignored them, in the case of the Californian. <laughs> And we'll get to the official inquest into that a little later. Uh, more than 1,500 people sadly passed away, the vast majority from drowning or from the freezing waters. And interestingly enough, this was something I learned when doing the research for both of these podcasts, it actually wasn't hypothermia that killed the vast majority of the people. The water was actually so cold, it caused cardiac arrest in so many people. I feel like I read that somewhere and found it super interesting, like, years ago. Yeah. It's just oh, legitimately horrifying. Yeah. Uh, around 4 a.m., uh, for, you know, for the record, it was about midnight that it hit the uh, iceberg. It was about 2 a.m., a little bit after. I think it's 2.14 is what the official inquest ruled, is when the ship formally sank and broke in two. It was very quick. only took about two hours and then right around 4 a.m., the Carpathia appeared, which they were the ones that were like, yeah, we're really fucking far away, but we're coming. They showed up four hours later, and they were able to pick up 710 survivors. And then they steamed uh, the last couple of days full steam ahead. They didn't stop. They went right to New York. Uh, sadly, the news was, uh, well, it was jumbled. The headline in Wilkes-Barre's local paper the next day was, Titanic hits iceberg. But all aboard are well, and it's being towed home by the Carpathia. Oh, nope. Oops. Uh, so official inquiries for both the U.S. and the U.K., because, of course, it was built over in Northern Ireland, uh, started almost immediately. Interestingly enough, they found no one officially negligible, and both uh, ended up ruling officially that the event was simply an act of God. But the one fun thing is the captain of the Californian, Stanley Lord, Captain Lord, which is the most English-sounding name ever, right? It is. Uh, he was, you know, thrown under the bus because, you know, why is your radio off? Why didn't you come? Because they basically figured out that the Californian was close enough. It was only about 20 miles away. The Californian was close enough that the people in the lifeboats of the Titanic could see it. And there actually were reports of a couple officers in the lifeboat saying, row to that ship, they're coming for us. And then they couldn't figure out why they never got any closer. Because it was heading away from them? Uh, well, it just was ignoring them. <laughs> and uh, so because of all this, you know, he was thrown through the mud. He was villainized, but they never formally charged him with anything under the maritime code. And since they never formally charged him with anything, he couldn't appeal anything. So he had his name drugged through the mud with no legal recourse. And he basically spent the rest of his life and his children spent the rest of his life 
trying to get his name cleared, which was kind of interesting. Was it his, like, was he aware that the radio guy went to bed? He was aware the radio guy went to bed, but that wasn't the real problem. Radios didn't have to be operated 24 hours a day until after the Titanic. The problem was his crew came to him and was like, yeah, there's a lot of flares out there and he from another ship. And he's like, oh, that's just fireworks. And they're like, no, they're the warning flares. And he just said to them, what color are they? And they said, well, there are no color. It's like white. And he said, oh, all right. And then just went back to bed. <laughs> OK, well, to be fair, fucker. <laughs> Which I don't know what, I never found out. I did try to look into what color he was hoping for and what that significance He was hoping for shut up and let me sleep. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But I I never found anything uh, like that. But so he he wasn't able to clear his name. Um, Interestingly enough, the uh, family of the one uh, lifeboat officer, they were able to sue James Cameron and they won for that scene in Titanic when the guy pulls out a gun and just starts shooting people on the deck of the Titanic. Um, Cause that was total bullshit. <laughs> and that never even came close to happening. A few guns were fired in the air, <laughs> but nowhere near people. Did, did the band go down with the boat? There is actually, there's no formal record of them going down with the boat, but people in the lifeboats, multiple people have claimed they heard music coming from the ship until it went under. Woof. Yeah. That's horrifying. Like, that's the scariest part of the story to me. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I was there. I was with the fucking captain of the Californian until he was he ignored the fucking flares. And I'm like, you know what? No fucker. <laughs> it, it was just... I mean, a lot of this you look at with modern eyes and, you know, it just blows you away. Like, wait, you could just turn your fucking radio off? Like, that's a thing? <laughs> like, I mean, truckers don't even do that with their CBs. No. Much less a massive cargo ship. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. But that that's the Titanic. Everything you wanted to know about that, the Titanic in 15 minutes. All right. Well, mine's going to be much, uh, much quicker than the Titanic was. So are my other two, I promise. All right. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to take you all the way back to May 6th, 1937, the explosion of the LZ-129 German airship, the Hindenburg. Uh, So uh, the explosion of the Hindenburg, it it was actually kind of uh, it was kind of a mundane, like routine thing. Right? Like, they were just trying to, to dock it at its birth, and the thing fucking explodes. Uh, there, yep. there isn't really, um, like, a, a series of events that, that I, I can drag out like I can for one of my other two. Uh, really, it, it, was, it was there, and it was fine. And then it, 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 they, the thing that they do, do say about it is that it didn't actually explode. It lit on fire. Yeah, but didn't they say, like, the, the fireball moved, like, one end to the other so quick that everybody thought it just detonated? Yeah, it, and it's pretty crazy. It did stay in the air for, like, 33 seconds after the fire started before it plummeted, which I found pretty interesting. Uh, the the explosion, burning, destruction of the Hindenburg is uh, essentially known as the end of the airship era. 
which I mean directly where we get steampunk from, right? Like I feel like every steampunk novel starts at what if the Hindenburg hadn't exploded? And it's a shame too, because like if Zeppelins were still a thing, I totally would. I'd fly fucking everywhere on a Zeppelin. Oh, a hundred percent. I've done. Have you ever done a hot air balloon? They're amazing. I have actually. Yeah, that's a good time. Yeah, it's so much fun. Uh, all right. So the Hindenburg uh, was a German airship. It was in Germany, um, and uh, there were ninety-seven people on board, thirty-six passengers, sixty-one crewmen. Out of those, and I actually was kind of astounded that this number wasn't higher. There were only 35 fatalities. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't either. Uh, 13 passengers and 22 crewmen, one of which was on the ground. He was ground crew. Oh. So, uh, like, a little bit over a third of the people died. But two thir- almost two-thirds of the people got out of the ship that fell out of the sky. Um, which I find kind of incredible. I mean, obviously horrible, but, um, there was a, uh, one of the fun stories that I I got to read was a young man, uh, the cabin boy of, uh, the Hindenburg, Werner Franz was, um, 14 at the time. And he was the last crew member to die. And he died in 2014 of natural causes. Which I, I just, I don't know why that fact stuck in my head, but I had to write it down. Well, I mean, that's, like, genuinely impressive. <laughs> it was. Uh, so I told you that fun little fact so I could tell you this next one and it wouldn't be as horrifying. Most <laughs> of the deaths were from fire, but a fair number of them were from people jumping out of the Hindenburg. Yeah, it was kind of like 9-11. You know, I was just going to say that, too. I was going to make a connection there. Um, So, yeah, there's some horrible shit, right? Um, So, in in essence, I mean, the Hindenburg, it was was an ignition of hydrogen. Now, by and large, the science was that you could fill these things up with hydrogen, it would be no problem, because hydrogen doesn't burn unless it's in the presence of oxygen. So as long as you keep those two things separate, it's fine. Uh, but there's a lot of theories, right? Nobody, nobody's actually sure how the Hindenburg dis- got destroyed. Uh, but there's three main theories. One is sabotage. Um, because this was during Hitler's regime. So there's some thoughts that maybe maybe uh, somebody from the ground shot the Hindenburg from, from the ground uh, in order to hinder Hitler's movements, um, which was kind of bonkers because most of the people on the Hindenburg were civilians, but that's a whole other story. Uh, there were thoughts that there was a German acrobat who might have sabotaged the Hindenburg from inside the, the crew cabin because he suspiciously went out to feed a dog that he was bringing back for his son way more times than maybe somebody should. Uh, there were thoughts that maybe there was a rigger who uh, was in the rigging of the Hindenburg at the time of the fire and was sabotaging it. Um one of the more prevalent theories of what caused it was uh, static electricity. Uh, the, these airships were meant to be constructed in a way where 
uh, static charges would be spread out across the hull so that they would dissipate before they could cause any problems. Um, but repairs to them over time and the material that they would use to, um, like fix seals and things like that, uh, were causing the, those static shocks to be, to build up. Uh, and ultimately the, the covering, uh, had some graphite in it. There was some aluminum plating to reflect light. Uh, there, there are thoughts that maybe there was some contact where there shouldn't have been, uh, and something may have created a circuit where a static buildup, um, ignited a spark. Uh, there was also something else that was kind of mysterious and no one's been able to completely explain uh, because while they weren't really in the middle of a thunderstorm, there were some some thunder and lightning off into the distance. Uh, but right before the the fire, uh, a an arc of blue light was seen at the rear of the ship. And there is uh, the, the third big prevailing thought is that a lightning strike uh basically blew at the sky high which I thought was really really interesting still to this day they don't really know they've done a ton of more analysis on it um, but you know a fair amount of people survived and were able to get out uh, it did start to list starboard uh, so uh, you know some people tried to escape that way and that's you know where they got caught and burned um, a lot of injuries. There were a lot of burn injuries. Uh, some people died at the scene. Others died in hospital, like up to four or five days later. Uh, so it was pretty rough. Um, but yeah, effectively ended airships. I, it's why we, I think I read somewhere that there's only like two or three blimps in, um, in operation today. And one of them is the Goodyear blimp. Yeah, and, like, basically that's been grandfathered in, like, to so many different fucking, uh, you know, because it's basically just a national treasure. Yeah. The Hindenburg was interesting because, I mean, at least off the top of my head, I can't think of another. Was this the first mass casualty event that was widely caught on film? It it was, yeah. Um, and it was also, like, one of the first, like, like mass casualty events of like a technology that like that really kind of like killed the technology completely. Right. Like plane, right. plane crashes have not killed the airplane, but uh, this killed airship culture. Like this was, is largely seen as a pivotal point in the technological and scientific development of our race because we didn't continue with fucking airships. Uh, but yeah, it was caught on on camera. It there there are pictures of the Hindenburg going down. Um, that there are eyewitness accounts from all around because it's an airship. Like you can fucking see it. Uh, people like looking at them. So uh, yeah, pretty incredible. Fucking wild. What's your next one? All right, my next one is one we actually talked about uh, briefly. We touched on briefly in our Ancient Rome series, but it's Mount Vesuvius. Mm, yes. Uh, so uh, it's a volcano that erupted in Italy in 79 CE, um, and it actually began about uh, 17 years earlier. It was initially unsettled by an earthquake in that region. Italy, still to this day, a lot of uh, seismic activity. 
So in 62 CE, uh, there was a major earthquake in the area. It was so big, in fact, that some of the buildings in Vesuv- uh, around Vesuvius hadn't actually been repaired from the earlier earthquake 17 years later or earlier. Um, this eruption was preceded by several smaller earthquakes that were ignored by pretty much everyone as like normal, like, uh, yeah, this happens. That one wasn't kind of like what you see in LA today. Like, oh, that was only like a 2.4 on the Richter scale. That was nothing. <laughs> and so on August 24th, or, you know, that was in the Roman calendar. Now we think it was uh, October 24th or could have been November 24th. Uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted. And it ended up not stopping for over two days. Jeez. The eruption occurred in two phases. Uh, the first phase threw pumice, ash, and hot gases uh, into the air and the surrounding areas. It lasted for about 18 to 20 hours itself. And then the second phase saw flow, flows of molten debris bury entire towns under piles of rubble nearly 70 foot deep in spots. So you just have hot magma, ash pumice, and then just rubble up to 70 feet deep. Jeez. Temperatures were, uh, are believed to have peaked at just over 680 degrees Fahrenheit. And the explosion threw debris several hundred feet into the air and several miles uh, distance-wise. This thing was, like, literally biblical. Like, the Romans understandably thought the world was ending because you had all this going on. There were multiple tsunamis across the Mediterranean, Earthquake shook all of Italy and uh, into the Alps. The lava flows were seen at night from dozens of miles away and were actually just thought to be fires in the distance. Uh, besides Pompeii, which was the famous one that everybody knows about today, many other towns were damaged or simply wiped off the map, including uh, Herculaneum, Mizinium, and uh, Apollontis. Uh, there was a few other ones, but those are the, the bigger ones. Every living thing was buried and suffocated under layers and layers of rock and ash. Nothing survived. Human, animal, plant, it, it didn't matter. Uh, this eruption was so devastating that even to this day, there are a handful of types of eruptions. Like when seismologists and volcanoists go and study things, they list what type of an eruption it is. And there actually is a Vesuvian type. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it was so bad, it changed the way they measured eruptions. Um, the death toll is impossible to tally. Uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum alone had a combined population of over 20,000, and they were two of, like, eight towns that just got destroyed. So is Pompeii... Like, this is the Pompeii one, right? Like, it was... Pompeii yes. wasn't a separate... Okay. No, this is the Pompeii one. Um, we have very few reports or accounts of survivors. We have some. The most famous is from uh, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Elder actually saw it all going on in the middle of the two days, ran towards Pompeii and got killed. Oh, Jesus. He did, like, he did like the reverse Bruce Wayne in Man of Steel. I didn't know that's how uh, Pliny died. Yeah, that's, that's how Pliny the Elder died. Pliny the Younger got the fuck out of Dodge and wrote a book about it. But Pliny <laughs> the Elder went, went to Pompeii and died. Um... Just over 1,500 bodies are preserved in ash castings in both Pompeii and Herculaneum. Um, Basically, everybody's seen photos of that. I mean, the cities, now that they've been excavated, are completely preserved, and they're our best window into the way a smallish Roman town looked. You have your bakeries, you have your houses, you have your water mills, you have your brothels. 
Um, and then you have the plaster casts of people doing their normal everyday thing. I mean, how many times a week does the image of the masturbator get shared? Jesus. Um, you know, it, it just is what it is. Uh, but yeah, Mount, Mount Vesuvius literally changed the world. And, you know, we talked about it in our Ancient Rome series. Romans loved to record things. They loved to record their own history. Uh, you literally see for a while, like, before Vesuvius and after Vesuvius. Like, they use it as a reference point. Jesus. So, I mean, did pe- like did people not see it coming? People, I mean, they saw the earthquakes, but there hadn't been... I mean, Mount Vesuvius was active. Uh, I think in the ancient Rome series, we went through how many times it erupted, but they were never anywhere near this, and they usually had more of a warning. And, I mean, yes, they did have warnings. They had the smaller quakes. They had the smaller tremors. They had the big earthquake that was 17 years later. I mean, with today's, you know, seismograph technology and everything, we could have read that earlier one and been like, hey, there's something big here that, you know, is letting off steam. Back then, they didn't think anything of it. They had a few small tremors. They're like, oh, okay. And literally, the accounts you read, the mountain literally exploded. Like, it, it was shorter I mean, not like hundreds of feet, but it's like noticeably shorter than what it was. Like the top of it just blew the fuck off. Man. Yeah. All right, what's your second one? (laughs) Uh, My second one um, is uh, Three Mile Island. Hey, that's by me. Yeah. Uh, So Three Mile Island was a nuclear power plant. Uh, in Pennsylvania, and it uh, the it basically had two reactors, and the second one uh, melted down starting at 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979. And I'm kind of glad that you took the Titanic because it gave me uh, a chance with Three Mile Island to talk about another aspect of how stupid people were. Yeah, there's a lot to go around with this one. <laughs> there are. Uh, so on a scale of seven, Three Mile Island was considered a level five accident with wider consequences. Uh, it was largely due to a malfunctioning manual valve in the secondary feed water cooling system. So uh, basically there was uh, meant to be, um, th- there was supposed to be a valve that shut, it didn't it just kept dumping water uh, and the people in, um, oh no, I think the first valve, the first valve closed and then there was a second valve that stayed open and just kept dumping water. But the first valve, they couldn't get open and it malfunctioned and nothing, the the core started to heat up. Uh, The, the techs just couldn't figure it out. Like they just, for whatever reason, they didn't read it as the right, um, as a, as a malfunction with the cooling system. So they, uh, they did something they shouldn't and dumped water. And due to the, the way this, this failure happened with the valves, 250,000 gallons of radioactive water just dumped out onto the floor of the containment building. Oh, yeah, just nasty, right? And people didn't, like, the text didn't know what to do, and people were trying to, like, hush it up that night, and there was all sorts of weird shit happening. Uh, but ultimately, um, 
The the emergency cooling system, it's supposed to dump water into the core to try and cool stuff down. But the tech misread the error and shut off the cooling system. We don't need this. <laughs> no. So it was like a series of like crazy bullshit where like one system failed and then a dude made the second system fail and then the the backup system failed. So like it was all going bad. 250,000 gallons of water just hanging out on the floor of the containment building and a sump pump went, oh fuck, it shouldn't be wet here. And it pumped the water, the radioactive water to an auxiliary building that didn't have the same protections as the containment building. And the auxiliary building vented radioactive steam into the atmosphere. Yep. Now, that venting just keeps fucking happening. Like, the auxiliary building keeps venting things. The techs keep inadvertently venting shit to the atmosphere. It's just not good. Like, I I can't tell you how many times I'm reading up on Three Mile Island, and it goes, yep, here's another timestamp, and somebody vented some more fucking radioactive steam out. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to... Uh, de-radioactive, like you're supposed to cycle the water and clean it of radioactive material and then let it evaporate. So there's there's procedures for shit like this that just weren't really followed. Um, So the the radioactive steam just keeps getting vented. Uh, Radioactive air just keeps getting vented. And it's two and a half days before the the company that's running the reactors and the government finally fucking go, oh, shit. And they evacuate pregnant women and children 10 miles uh, in a 10 mile radius. They eventually uh, evacuate everybody and just kind of wait to see what fucking happens. Uh, so I, it's not great. Unit two melted down. Uh, and they they were able to contain it. It took weeks uh, of like testing and containment and cleanup and all sorts of crazy bullshit. But like that cleanup went on for years and years and years and years and years. Um, ultimately, uh, contracts got bought out and companies went out of business and things like that. And Excelon, the giant nuclear company, ended up buying both and farming out the management of uh, Reactor 2. Because Reactor 2, it it wasn't venting shit to the atmosphere anymore, but the cleanup of a melted-down nuclear core, Mm -hmm. as anybody who... uh, What's that show that everybody was obsessed with? Chernobyl. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Uh, As anyone who's seen anything on that, you know like how bad a nuclear meltdown can be. This wasn't quite as bad as Chernobyl, um, but there was still a lot to clean up, right? Again, 250,000 gallons of radioactive water dumped to a building that was not ready to, to handle it. Uh, so ultimately, the cleanup efforts, Excelon kind of uh, farmed those out. Uh, and, I mean, they had to remove the radioactive pieces of the core. They had to clean the water. They had to let the water evaporate. Uh, they had to take all the the fissionable material off site. Um, ultimately, the all of Three Mile Island is now shut down. It shut down officially in 2019. 
uh, before the pandemic started. And the effects are kind of hard to nail down, but Three Mile Island and Chernobyl are both kind of the leader uh, events that led to the beginning of the decline of nuclear power, right? Uh, We still have nuclear power running a lot across the world today, uh, but nobody's making new nuclear power plants anymore. Like, it's not really a thing. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for other energy. I think we've come back to like coal and, and oil and shit like that, which is its own. I'm not making any political statements here. Um, but radiation in a 10 mile radius around the reactor, uh, it let out, depending on who you talked to and how close you were, uh, people in a 10 mile radius were exposed to either, uh, the radiation of an x-ray, or about, uh, all at once, a third of a year of normal radiation intake. So not crazy, right? You know, n- nobody's got melting skin because of Three Mile Island. Yeah, um, it's not like, you know, the, the first people that went into Chernobyl that died the next day. Yeah, yeah. But it's not great. No, it's not great. Um, and they were able to contain a, a lot of it, which is good. Um, there are some studies that have been done that did some predictive models on what the radiation would have been and have shown that it could have led to a, uh, a significant uptick in cases of leukemia. Um, but again, uh, th- we don't have definitive proof or studies uh, around that right now. Um, but I mean, it's pretty significant. Uh, Three Mile Island definitely was uh, was at the forefront of, holy fuck, maybe we should stop building these things near people. Yeah, I I believe I'm not a hundred percent, but I believe the second reactor because they you know as you said it was two units and then they actually were building a third during when the meltdown occurred that they never finished. Um, but I believe the second unit at Three Mile Island was actually the last reactor to go online in America. I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we've got one close to where I live. Yeah, we have one here. We have one 20 minutes away in Berwick. Yeah. But it was, I think, a little bit before. I want to say it was like 75 or 76. It was around the same time because uh, the, the 70s was the big, uh, the big nuclear boom. Have you ever seen the video when they finally put a camera in the core? No. Of Three Mile Island? Yeah. I haven't. It was like years and years later. I want to say it was like in the mid-90s. And, you know, it's just like one of those, like a fancier version of it, but it's essentially one of those cameras like the plumbers use where it's on the end of a snake. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just going and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, this is what I imagine a nuclear reactor would look like. It's, you know, it's just metal and concrete. And then they get about halfway down and everything is just gone. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just black and twisted and jagged. And it's like, huh? Oh yeah. It literally melts down. Like it's one of those things like, of course that's what, that's why they call it a meltdown. But until you see it, you're like, huh? It, it's impressive. <laughs> it, it led to a, a an interesting um, theory and kind of an understanding of complex systems that we just didn't really have before. And it's the concept of a normal accident. 
And it's it's why things that are that are this complex have a lot of failover and and backup systems and shit like that is that the prevailing theory that was proposed after Three Mile Island was that uh, this was always going to happen because a, a nuclear reactor is so complex, so complicated that there's always going to be a failure in the future. It's kind of like what they teach you when you learn how to mo- ride a motorcycle. Uh, it's not if you're going to fall, it's when you're going to fall. And because these yeah. systems are so complex, something will fail and something catastrophic will happen. It's kind of pessimistic, but it, it is uh, kind of the prevailing uh, understanding now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing with planes. Every system has a backup, every backup has a backup, and every one of those backups has an emergency because eventually one of them is just going to fall out of the fucking sky. So true. All right, what you got for your last one? All right, my last one is another ship, and you're probably all going, oh, come on, you already did that. But no, this one is totally different, and we're not going to focus on the sinking of it per se. We're going to focus on the aftermath afterwards. And it's uh, the USS Indianapolis, which was a World War II warship. Uh, So now it was sunk on June 30th, 1945, so very near the end of the war. Germany had already surrendered. It would only be about another, God, nine days, ten days until Japan surrenders. The Indianapolis was alone in the Pacific without an escort due to its prior mission parameters. Now, we don't have time to go into its final mission, but the final mission was wild, and basically the long and the short of it was it was bringing the parts of the nuclear bomb. And because of that, we didn't want the Japanese to know anything about it. We didn't want them to know. So they were sending the Indianapolis everywhere by itself because they're like, well, if we put a bunch of escorts with this ship, they're going to know something's up and they're going to attack it. So it has the parts to the bomb. It delivers the parts to the bomb. Now it's heading home. By this point, they're like, yeah, no, we don't have any ships for you. Sorry. Like, we're going to go nuke Japan and end the war. Just, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So it runs into a Japanese submarine. Submarine takes a shot. It sinks the Indianapolis on June 30th. And this is where the fun begins. Jesus. Because it was alone and because it was still technically on a top secret covert mission, it wasn't even known that it sunk until three and a half days later. Uh... when it was just a plane found its oil slick. The first rescue ships did not arrive until the middle of the fourth day. So now when it was sunk, just over 900 sailors went into the water. Now, unlike the Titanic, most of these guys had life vests. Some of them even had uh, lifeboats. A lot of them had no life jackets, but a lot of them had them, and a lot of them, uh, some even had lifeboats. Not a lot of them did, but some did. Uh, Over the three days... They would fight dehydration during the day, sun poisoning during the day, because they're just out there cooking, floating in the water, and then hypothermia at night, because the ocean's a lot like the desert. There's no atmosphere or anything. So as warm as it fucking gets during the day, it gets just that cold at night. They're floating in fuel oil. They're floating in engine oil. They're floating in phosphorus and gunpowder and all these other chemicals from where the ship went down. And it was a long streak because, of course, they're drifting. You know, the ocean, you move around. Uh, 
I'm going to butcher this, hypernatremia, which is actually salt poisoning. This became a major issue as they went on because they're just sinking. They're literally constantly in water. Even though you have a life jacket, you're still in water. So imagine, you know, when you're in the pool too long or if you take a bath and you start to prune, just imagine that for four days straight with no break, but you're also absorbing salt. Oof. Uh, sleep deprivation was a big thing. Mild starvation because they had very almost no rations. The biggest threat, however, is my greatest fear, uh, the sharks. Yeah, this is why uh, I don't swim in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was lots of blood in the water. There was lots of explosions that they heard. So literally hundreds of tiger sharks began circling the group. Uh, they began picking off the dead and wounded one by one, which of course only led to more blood, which led to feeding frenemies. And then they began attacking the survivors, which by this point, again, they're dehydrated, they're hungry, they're delirious. Now they're starting to get paranoid. They can't sleep because when they sleep, they stop moving, shark pulls them under. So uh, men began hallucinating. Uh, they would see like standard mirages. They would think people were trying to attack them. They would think there was planes in the air, both friendly and enemy. It was awful. Um, several just committed suicide out and out, either by actively stabbing themselves, drowning themselves, or just letting themselves be taken by sharks willingly. Other people attacked their friends. Some even killed their friends. Um, there were reports from survivors, although they never really were confirmed, of cannibalism. Uh, and all this is only over four days. Now, it's very traumatizing four days. But yeah. It was all only over four days. Um, from the just over 900 that initially went into the water, only 316 survived. And two of those died in hospital. So really only 314 survived. Uh, the death toll from sharks alone is estimated at about 150. Uh, National Geographic uh, actually had a thing with Discovery during Shark Week one year. Uh, they were partnering up, and they uh, this is recorded as the worst instance of shark attacks ever. They think there was something like 300 or 350 tiger sharks in the area. Jesus. Which is just absolutely fucking horrifying. So and not it a all fan. Kinda, not a fan, no. And it, it, it kind of gets glossed over because... You know, the, the Hiroshima mission was successful and then the war ended up ending and we ended up winning. So that this is all just sort of like, yeah, well, you know, it was worth it. Hey. Which, oh. <laughs> just, oh. No, not a fan. All right. I'm, I'm going to take us out on a happier note. Take us out on a happier note, please. All right. So I, I'm taking you back to July 9th, 1958 at 10.15 at night. Uh, Pacific time in Alaska. Cool. Okay. This is known as uh, the Latuya, Latuya Bay earthquake and mega tsunami. I don't like that mega in there, but keep going. Uh, it is known as the largest recorded mega tsunami in modern time. Uh, there were no casualties whatsoever. Uh, for this event. So legitimately amazing. Uh, so an earthquake uh, was measured at 8.2 on the Richter scale. Uh, and the earthquake struck the Fairweather Fault. 
Uh, it's an active transform fault between the North American and Pacific plates uh, that is right here in this bay. And this bay is bonkers looking. I, 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 I realize this is an audio-only medium, and I can't really show pictures, <laughs> but this bay is known for having tsunamis. Like, this is... There were many tsunamis in this bay because of the way that these active plates cause earthquakes quite often. Um, and uh, there's actually a debate as to whether the landslide that happened because of the earthquake or the earthquake itself was what caused this tsunami. Probably a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Uh, the impact of the landslide and the earthquake in this bay was heard 50 miles away. Oh, you know, okay. The earthquake triggered a rock slide of 90 million tons of earth that dropped 100 feet into the water of the bay. 90 million tons. Josh, I got a rock. Uh, it displaced water and created a mega tsunami that washed out trees at the exit of the bay at a max height of 1,720 feet, taller than the Empire State Building. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, there were eyewitness accounts. Uh, the, there were fishermen. Uh, there was uh, a husband and wife fishermen who were outside the bay. Uh, the husband swore that he saw the glacier in the bay bouncing up and down because of the earthquake and, and saw the wave come through. Uh, there was a, uh, a father and a son who were out, and the son was asleep in the boat while the father was fishing. And uh, they saw the earth shaking and the wave pushed them out of the bay. But uh, the father was able to steer the boat and they didn't capsize. So well done to him. Kind of nice, right? Uh, the the long term effects here um, is that this this wave caused a complete reanalysis of large wave events because it again taller than the empire state building it's uh th i saw a graphic it's taller than the eiffel tower taller than the empire state building and it could give the the burj khalifa a um a run for its money uh the damage that happened because of the earthquake and the 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 subsequent wave is still visible from space today and okay. this happened in 1958 Okay. Yeah. So pretty cool. I mean, a disaster, right? Like it definitely changed the face of this bay, uh, and, and literally and damage. <laughs> yeah, changed the face of the planet, um, but no casualties, and it wasn't man-made. So hey, there's a win for us. Yeah, uh, that is a great fucking way to end. It is. I like that. It is. Uh, we ran long today, ladies and gents, but we, uh, you know, we just. We felt bad for not being around last week and wanted to give you guys a little bit extra. Uh, but also, to be fair, these were really interesting topics. So I'm glad we, we took the time today. And I had to read all about this about the Titanic, so you have to now, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, we'd love to, to get a subscribe from you if we can. Pre-save us on Spotify. Go give us that rating on iTunes if you can think of it. Those five stars really help move us up. Uh, we are out on the internet at the Wit and Whiskey Cast on 
Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, we're online, www.thewitandwhiskeycast.com. Uh, feel free to go out there, see our photos and our blog posts. Uh, there is a uh, no H in wit and an E in whiskey. Had to think about it for a minute there. I was going to say, that went through you for a second. It did, it did. Uh, but we're out pretty much anywhere. Where Whatever your podcatcher of choice is, we're out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes. Uh, we are releasing right here, 8 a.m. on Fridays, uh, and we do 15-episode seasons, so we still got quite a ways to go through season five. Uh, Mark, what are we doing next week? Uh, well, you know, we, we, we were taught, we had a few ideas in the fire, uh, although before we get to that, I'm going to talk about all our podcatchers. I think we might actually be on a podcatcher that doesn't officially exist yet. What? Um, from some of the emails and things I've got from our friends at Podbean who, you know, help sort of host us and push our RSS feeds out other ways, I believe we may be on, uh, the new Samsung podcasts platform. The problem is when I went to go check, cause I have like everything Samsung as I sit here holding my fold, uh, from what I can dis- dissertain, it hasn't launched yet. What? <laughs> and I haven't found a way to download it if it is launched. So uh, we may be on Samsung Podcast. We may not. We'll have more info on that. But <laughs> we're coming to you from the future, apparently. <laughs> That's amazing. But no, we, uh, you know, for next week, we had talked about possibly finishing up uh, collecting in whiskey. But I was thinking if we want to save that for later, if we want to save part two for later, uh, we could talk about... Uh, Food and cooking. Now, I love food. I love eating. I hate cooking. I You mm, love cooking. <laughs> I can fucking talk about cooking. Um, you know, I mean, we don't have to, but, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about it, and I, I did some cooking yesterday. I had the in-laws over, and they're like, oh, you know, you're pretty good at this. Why don't you do this more often? And I'm like, because I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just fucking hate it. <laughs> well... I guess challenge accepted. I, I will try to wax eloquently next week and see if I can get you on board. I love how we had to twist his arm there, ladies and gentlemen. I guess. I mean, okay. All right. We're, we're coming at you next week. Cooking part one in whiskey because I can't cover that shit in just one. Yeah, no, that's going to. Yeah, that's going to be a part one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, until next week, oh, I'm excited now. Uh, oh, we do want to, of course, uh, shout out to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. We love you, buddy. Um, we love you, Nuno. Uh, I just heard that he's uh, moving out to uh, uh, to a new city, and uh, we, we got to have dinner with him here local. But, uh, you know, we, we wish you the best, Nuno. We hope everything goes well. And uh, we'll look to see if we can get him on, uh, if not this season, next season, to talk about something fun. Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm assuming we're happy for him. You know, good good for you this new opportunity, uh, or, or not. If we're supposed to be sad, I'll be sad for you too. Nuno, you let me know what I'm supposed to feel for you, and I'll feel it. <laughs> uh, he's excited. I'm sad to see him leave local, but of course, you know, it, I'm I'm glad for anybody getting a new opportunity. So it, it'll be great for him. Well, if he's excited, I'm excited. But I will say one thing, and it, it, it's trite and it's cliche, but there has been one benefit to the pandemic. Yeah. The world has become infinitely smaller. It's true. That yeah. is the only benefit to the pandemic. It is. It's much easier to maintain digital friendships now. Yes. 
So, uh, well, anyway, uh, best luck, Nuno, and until next week, cheers. Salute.